I'm Andrea Hansen. And I'm Elizabeth Beckman. We are your hosts here at the Hysterecology Podcast. We are two clinicians who hope to have meaningful yet candid conversations about whatever is on our mind. In a hysterical way, whether that means absolutely crazy or kind of funny, hopefully, maybe, sometimes. Today we ended up talking about several topics over the course of a couple of hours, just again, very open forum. And we started out talking a little bit about the clinical mind, the experience of the therapist, insurance companies, some of the limitations working with insurance, some toxic workplace cultures and some tendencies that seem to happen in the field at clinics. That's kind of my perspective of what we ended up talking about. How would yeah, you think Overall, the discussion, from my point of view, was very much the balance of being a therapist and being a human and in, in different settings and with pressures from different varying angles, yeah. what that ends up feeling like and looking like in the mind of a therapist at least these two therapists, and then the different barriers that get in the way of creating balance between that, which includes the discussion about insurance and working at clinics. You know, overall, the discussion is the side that's not discussed as often. Typically, when you see therapists having conversations, it's all you know, pretty light and fluffy. It's about what a gift it is, how fulfilling it is to work in this space that we do. And I do believe that's true. However, I think that there is a curtain over the rest of it for the most part. And there's multiple reasons for that, some of which we discussed in this episode and, and will continue to discuss in the future. But in this context with humanizing ourselves and humanizing therapists and creating a platform where we can spark some hope and, and maybe even work towards decreasing burnout and getting you know qualified therapists to be able to continue within their careers, some of that stuff behind the curtain, it really needs to have a light shown on it. So this conversation uh, isn't about all of the great reasons that therapists love being therapists and all the fulfillment it is about the other side. Yeah, and it is, hopefully if there's anything, if you are a therapist that you've carried and you wondered like, what's wrong with me or am I doing something wrong? We might touch on certain things you go, I can relate to that, okay, it's not just me. Or if you're listening not from a clinician perspective, there might be some benefit in, in just being able to recognize, oh, my, my therapist does have kind of life or life experience outside of the setting or understanding some of the nuances that can impact the treatment that you're receiving in uh, either whether it's a clinic setting or with your kind of individual private practice therapist. My hope is there's some value or there might not be any value and that's okay too because we're not holding ourselves up in this setting as that everything we're saying is we're the ultimate expert. We very much are just trying to have kind of a casual, hopefully at times lighthearted, but at times maybe serious conversation about our experiences. And again, for me, if the, if the end value ends up just being we've had a good conversation and we've connected and spent time together, that's amazing because I love you and you're amazing <laughs> and I love your perspective. She's talking to me, not you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't you think I'm talking about you. <laughs> Maybe you'll love to hate us. <laughs> and that's okay, too. Maybe we're we'll totally your life. <laughs> <laughs> we're totally open to We're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Use I Andrea is not. I am. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, let us know if you have any questions or if there's anything you'd love to hear our thoughts on. 
and uh, we hope you enjoy our conversation. As therapists, when we're sitting in front of a client, we have a conceptualization of that specific client. We know their history, we know their cultural context, we know how their specific brain works, and it's very easy to then um, communicate in a way that works best for that client and to work within their worldview. And there's a level of anxiety for a lot of therapists and that, that we were talking about where if you're talking to a broad group of people or a broad audience that's not specifically, you know, parents of teens who struggle with XYZ, right? Yeah. That's just talking to the world in general. You don't, you don't know how it's, it's just, it's anxiety provoking. Like I could say something that, you know, for one specific person could be very meaningful and to another person it could be very hurtful. Totally. Or it could be completely misconstrued and used as a way to cause harm. So there's all of these things filtering through, at least me and I imagine Elizabeth as well, as we're trying to just sit here and talk like normal oh, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's running anything I think of saying also through that lens of not wanting to or that filter of not wanting to misuse what I feel is a stewardship of people might put what we say, or they might not, and that's fine too, but they might put what we say at a higher level of credibility and making sure as much as we want to be lighthearted and playful, also being careful and responsible because like you said for me a big issue and something i think it could be valuable for us to talk about today if you're willing to talk about it or if you want to um is people abusing their power in any setting either people being unaware of whether it's a parent being unaware of how powerful their voices and even the words or their tone is in impacting the life and the well-being of their kids or a judge in a courtroom or a therapist with a client or a doctor with their patient. That's something that I have a kind of a sensitivity toward and a desire to advocate with every one of my clients or with my family members or in general to empower people to not to not feel like they can be treated a certain way. I worry and I don't want to misuse my voice. Yeah, I never want to, even with one-on-one -on -one clients, I never want to portray myself as someone who has all the answers. No. And I think I made a post about this on um, social media the other day too, that I, you know, as a therapist, I work with complex trauma and I, I focus very much on the lower brain, the nervous system and the body. And I see my place as that, as going in and recalibrating that system so that it's not in a state of survival, so that it's now in a place of being able to lean in on itself, as opposed to me being in a position where someone thinks that I might have the answers for their life. So I, I, a good amount of the time, don't have the answers for my own life, let alone anybody else's yeah. life. Um, and I, with this podcast as well, I don't want anyone to think that I'm out here trying to say like, oh, well, I have all the answers or anything like that. So, no, I'm, I'm just a person. And especially in this setting, for therapists, it's hard for us to find moments where we are allowed to just be people. Yeah. And I would really like to be able to just be a person on this podcast. Yeah, and I think us continuing to find how 
how we even differentiate that while we're talking. And for me, trying to be aware of if I'm going, okay, so this is, this is me, I'm going to share something that is probably pretty credible clinical information or data or more empirically supported perspectives versus this is me just going off the cuff. We're sharing something that might be very just specific to how I view the world and it makes sense to me, but finding a way for me to organically be able to say that because like you said, it's hard as a therapist because there's this pressure from people where they expect more of you. Mm -hmm. And if you have a human moment, I've had people where it's like, and by people, I mean like family members sometimes, whereas a low blow, it's like, oh, so you're a therapist. Oh yeah. You're a therapist and you're like this. And so you sit here and you're like, first of all, I don't necessarily think I'm being anything like I'm doing anything that I shouldn't be able to have just emoting. But, but beyond that, then it's funny on the flip side, I've had family members too who have even been, it's like, I just need my sister right now. I just need my daughter right now, I'm not a therapist. And it's like, first of all, I am just am mm -hmm. a being who I'm not a therapist. I have those skills that are part of who I am. I apply them. They're a more refined way of me operating in the world. And they often are a far greater benefit. I'm a far greater benefit to other people with all of those skills yeah. working and functioning. It's second nature because it just becomes who you are. And I'm not, like for me, I'm not drastically a different person in my therapy room than I am outside of it, but... You don't use therapist I voice. try not to. I try yeah. to be aware <laughs> if, I'm doing, if I'm doing voice <laughs> or even like sitting in a way where I'm like... Yeah. I, myself, right? With Those your are, clipboard. Mm-hmm. You're no. very soothing. And sitting there and let me... Mm. Oh, that's so... Like I'll catch myself and I won't usually vocalize it because it's of no value to the client. For me recognizing, oh, I feel like I'm posturing right now. Why am I doing that? Like, is uh -huh. it valuable to them or is it about me? And usually it's about me. Yeah. But it's interesting to feel that pressure. Totally. To be able to be a yeah. human. And then even other people sometimes will overtly. They'll either want that from you and they'll be upset that you're just being a human. <laughs> or they are upset that they think you're being a therapist with them. Yeah. When I've you're just being a human. All of that. You know, just, just being a human and, and even even saying stuff that I think is 100% within the realms of a normal thing to say and, and getting that a backlash from people of like, oh my gosh, you must be a terrible therapist or I can't believe you're a therapist. And it's like, okay, so, I mean, you're not in my office right now. I'm not on the clock. I'm not your therapist. I'm a person right now and I'm allowed to be a person. And then like you were saying, those other situations where... It is always like in the back of your mind, um, trying to figure out those boundaries with people and when to jump in with something helpful or when to hold back. Oh, totally. And I find, it, of course it differs depending on different situations, but I really hold back for the most part with anything, with any yeah. kind of support, unless I'm explicitly asked because I don't want people feeling like I'm being a therapist for them or partially because they didn't ask and partially for my own sanity and my own boundaries I have to be able to leave the therapist part of me behind even though it's it's in the background it's running there are things that I could do but sometimes I, I wonder if I'm bordering too much on the end of being super insensitive if I'm out to lunch with a group of people or or whatever and someone talks about something that they're struggling with it's like oh yeah that sucks and then we move on but I'm you can feel that internal pressure. Yeah. I don't know if you have that. 
I can totally relate to what you're sharing. I do, and I think as many of us as therapists probably feel this way, like I do enjoy helping people. I love facilitating insights for them. I love gaining insights and being open to people feeling like they're able to teach me and empower me or give me perspective. But I'll have that too in moments where I'm trying to find that authentic place because I always feel like I'm intentionally, like you said, I'm not wanting to rescue anybody. I'm not wanting to hijack. Mm -hmm. I'm also not wanting to just impose myself and pretend I know it all. Although, I mean, I've got great knowledge, insights, perspectives, but like you said, the agreement in those more family, friend, social, kind of the, the agreement in those relationships isn't, isn't like I'm going to walk in and be the one there providing support mm -hmm. therapy guidance versus like right. a client. So it is hard. I've had moments like that too where I'll draw back and I'm like, should I, should I have said something better? Were they wanting me to? Are they not wanting me to? I've had, I've had those worries on both sides of the spectrum. Like there was a, an event, my husband's in the military and he, there was this dinner uh, thing going on and, and he'd ha my husband's very creative and dynamic and he had this kind of experiential, you know, skill development thing happening. And we all ended up at different tables depending on what skills we felt we were, did well in or were struggling in. And I found there was some people, couple of guys talking about their relationships with their wives and even going to therapy. And of course, here I am, I'm a marriage and family therapist, but I was just sitting back listening and not inserting myself, but there was a lady who kind of waltzed in. And I was trying to also be a part of it. As a therapist, I try not to act like, well, I'm a therapist, and so <laughs> I'm apart from all of you, I've got it figured out. But then there was this gal, and I found myself wondering, I'm like, who is she and what does she do for a living? Because she kind of waltzed in and totally inserted herself in to their conversation and said something that I felt was actually quite base level and uninspiring, but the guys were like, oh yeah, wow. And so there was a part of me going, first of all, it was like, it was a strange thing. And I was like, is she a therapist or somebody? Because she seemed very eager. First of all, she like wouldn't sit at the table with everybody. She had to like kind of crouch and it was like, how's it going everybody? And I was like, she wasn't facilitating it. She was supposed to be a part of it. So there's a part of me sitting back judging her and <laughs> kind of psychoanalyzing her. But then when she took the opportunity to say something, I'm like, well, should I to have been a good person? Said something yeah. because these guys were speaking, but I was worried about wanting to just be a part of the group and not pretend I was the one providing answers because that wasn't my role. Totally. But here's this lady, and I don't know who the heck she was. And again, didn't feel like what she had to say was anything too meaningful, but these people did. Right, and, and, so, and maybe it was meaningful, or maybe they felt the oh, need sure. to say that sure. it was meaningful, which I know that I have done so many times, and part of why I hold back is I, I get annoyed with people jumping in and randomly getting advice, when like, first off, I don't know you, and you don't know the whole situation, totally. um, and then now, instead of you know, whatever supportive friendship that I'm meeting, now I'm now I'm nodding and being like, oh, yeah, that's so great. Yeah, thank you for that. Oh, wow, I hadn't even yeah. thought of that. You know, like that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, well, that's, um, I don't want to be that person. But like you're saying, on the other hand, sometimes just as a normal friend without being, you know, before we were therapists, these things would come up and you'd be a normal friend and you say normal say friend things. What came up? It just becomes so much more complicated when you're a therapist <laughs> and you're worried about managing again kind of that stewardship and then on the flip side of that I do feel the pressure that if I say something it needs to be inspired and mm -hmm. incredible and I have in fact an a desire I would love 
for everything I said to be incredible and inspiring. Not like so that everybody thought I was incredible, because, but I would love to be that level of being that was always just so insightful and on point. Yeah. And so there, if, like for me, I will have that pressure, which I know sometimes probably does hold me back from saying anything yeah. versus more silently, like you said, there's moments where it's kind of, gosh, that really sucks. When it's like, right. if I wasn't a therapist, I, they, I probably would say a lot more, mm -hmm. which is a weird, it is kind of this weird catch 22. But there is more pressure as a therapist too, not just within ourselves, but societally as well as ethically. So I, one of my supervisors went to this ethical conference where they were told of this story where a therapist was talking to their neighbor, their neighbor was complaining to them about how terrible their marriage was, and the therapist had no professional relationship with this neighbor whatsoever. They were just neighbors, and the therapist mentioned something about like, oh, just get a divorce or whatever, and that person came back and sued them because the suggestion went terribly, and they are a professional, so there is a higher level of ethics that come into saying something offhand like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't even think about that, the liability piece. It is so difficult to determine. And then even having that sense of there's a right or a best or a most appropriate way to respond, which I think being in a profession where we're trying to help people uh, obviously sometimes process through trauma or heal past wounds or even optimize their functioning or or help them resolve distorted thinking, it's hard not to then have that knowledge always sitting there. Mm -hmm. Not that you're judging, for me, not that I'm like judging myself, but it being something that might keep me from just being authentically human in a moment. Yeah. Because I have this awareness and it's where I think knowledge and, and skills are, they're a burden I'm, I'm happy to carry, but they can be burdensome because once they're there, it's hard to then turn a blind eye to that and just be. When it's like, oh, I could, I could offhand say something and really do damage to somebody. Or working with enough people who often unintentionally by their loved ones or by other people have been so damaged by people just thoughtlessly, carelessly being. Right. That it is, it's really hard. There's this higher level of responsibility and stewardship. But then on the other hand, end, um, with friends who have never been a therapist and therapists a lot of times we struggle to talk about us, ourselves and our experiences and especially is it appropriate in the client therapist relationship the majority of the time to talk about things a lot of times people have no idea why their therapist friends act so weird because it's it is it's strange right and and i can see where the question would be coming from of, oh and you're a therapist you don't seem like my codependent hairdresser right and that's the kind of the cultural or you're not norm, just sitting you right? know psychoanalyzing like what's demonstrated on tv shows oh, yeah, where constantly. if someone has a particular skill which can be somehow reading people supposedly or just understanding what they're thinking or what's going on just by looking at their body language all these misconceptions and then they're interpreted in such dramatic ways where yeah. like you said there can be these perceptions of people going well you're a therapist like you don't fit in that box right. having a certain expectation of you like you're not com coming to my aid, you're not rescuing me at every moment, you're not saying like, oh, well, this specific thing comes from this specific thing. It's mm -hmm. much more complicated than that. And for me, like a lot of the reason I don't step in a good amount of the time, especially when I'm asked to step in, is because I don't have a full analysis 
of the situation. I haven't done an intake with this person. So you're not kind um, of taking for granted what you don't know. What I and don't just know. Exactly. Willy-nilly throwing out there whatever comes to the top of your mind. Right, because it might not apply to them at all, and it might be actually harmful for them, or it could just be some weird stereotypical thing that I'm saying that applies broadly to a lot of people, but not to them in their situations. And a lot of times those situations are people who I, who I don't really know both people very well saying like, oh, well, I think my ex is a narcissist or something like that, or, or I think my kid has ADHD or something, and or my kid is doing this behavior, what should I do? And I just, I don't know. I can't really respond in those situations. As, you know, you can describe from your perception what you think is going on, but that is all it is at the end of the day. And I'm not gonna sit down and do, you know, an hour long, an hour and a half long, really assessing the situation and observing everything in order to give the answer that they're looking for, because that would be an inappropriate yeah. relationship at that point. I am more than willing if somebody goes, hey, you know, can I pick your brain about this? And aside from that, before I get into the story, it's interesting too where I think something unique we kind of face as therapists. I've had both people, I try to be sensitive. I don't want people thinking I'm sitting psychoanalyzing them and feeling that pressure because people will sometimes be like, oh, are you just sitting there doing this? Or how is it to be married to my husband? How is it being married to a therapist? Oh, yeah. You know? Which well, he has on TV and stuff, they do show oh, yeah. that being going terribly. Which my husband is lovely, right? His response, and I think it's authentic. I don't think he's stoking my ego. People are like, actually, it's really great. Like, we really benefit from what she knows and how she applies that and how that works for us. But I try to be careful not to just jump in and impose myself. But if people will ask, I definitely want to share whatever knowledge I have. But I always try to counterbalance that with letting them know like this isn't the ultimate answer this isn't this is a possibility or this is a conceptualization we don't want to overstep and have kind of an inappropriate application of our skills when it's just a personal relationship but then how much do you use your knowledge and skills to probably really help somebody it that? really ends up being you know what is the type of relationship that I have with this person you know what's the quality how well do we know each other is it a back and forth relationship yeah. like you and I go back and forth and it's a beneficial relationship and I enjoy it yeah. but if it's somebody who I really don't know that well and they just happen to know I'm a therapist and we have some mutual friends then I have definitely more of a boundary in that type of situation partially yeah. just for my own sanity and my own time I can't I just do not have the time or the space to be able to be everybody's free therapist whenever yeah. they want one. But when it comes to family members or really close friends who I lean on them, they lean on me and we're helpful to each other in in different ways and have different insights and they understand that boundary of on rare occasion or something really big comes up, then I'm happy to help them in whatever kind of more generic way that I can then that's a completely different scenario. One thing I've noticed is the people in my life, they're way more insecure and worried about me feeling like they're exploiting me for what I know or my skills more than I'm concerned about. I'll just be engaged with them at a base level, very easy for me to provide in a normal interaction. But other people on many occasions, it's like, oh, I don't want you to think I'm wanting to take advantage or exploit or that I'm only sharing this with you because you're a therapist. I guess for me, sometimes I worry less about managing that with my loved ones because luckily, I think it, to me, it feels like, oh, they appreciate that I have something of value to offer because 
they are careful sometimes even vocalizing worry of like, oh, I don't want you to feel taken advantage of. And I'll actually have to assure them, I'm happy to support you in this way. Maybe I take for granted how much of sometimes what I'm able to provide is clinical grade support, now that we're talking about it even here. Because for me, it just feels like how I'm capable of being. And no, we don't have a relationship where I'm actively then working off of a treatment plan and a diagnosis, but I'm probably providing almost a more clinical level of back and forth, but to me it just feels like a default. It's in, it's just interesting. I'm having kind yeah. of an interesting thought and realization as we're talking about it. Yeah, it is It is really interesting. And it's just, it's interesting to sit here and talk about and think about all of the background thought that goes into each of these individual interactions and just the therapist brain, right? As we have that going on in every conversation that we're in and in the clinical room with clients even we have the front part of us that is the interactive part and that is you're saying kind of the part we show people yeah like our face and our and our body posture and our tone of voice and our our expressions and you know the words that end up coming out of our mouths or the technique that we end up performing but then in the background deeper down there's a connection like a sense of empathetic connection where I'm just trying to tune in to the client and where they're at and the shifts that they're experiencing. But then there's another part that's analyzing their facial expressions, their tone, their body movement. And then there's another part that's scanning through all the possible interventions at every single moment. Because unlike doctors, it's not like you go in to a therapist and they ask you your list of symptoms and they give you one intervention or maybe two. Like, here's your prescription, here's your shot. Um, It's a constant flow of interventions, whether that intervention is silence for a moment or that intervention is asking a very specific question or saying a very specific thing. And that those things happen from moment to moment to moment that you can't really go into sessions, at least I don't, go into sessions prepared with what that session is going to look like. Because there's a constant interaction and with every little interaction, there's that constant analysis. It takes a lot of space and a lot of presence as we're talking about this. In my mind, I'm just thinking, wow, it it makes a lot of sense, even from this perspective, why so many therapists burn out after just five years in the field. Oh, totally. Because not only are you putting all of that effort into every single client that you see, but you're using that same level of brain power with every interaction that you have with every single human to determine hard not to. is my certain level of humanness versus therapiness appropriate for this specific conversation that I'm having? And yeah. where do I draw that line in this? And we've, we've compared it to a car mechanic before or any other kind of professional where if a car mechanic is looking at a car, they're going to have all of their knowledge and experience there with them. Even if they're not there to work on that car, they're still going to have that knowledge and experience. And if they hear something wrong with the car, they're going to start thinking about what could this possibly be? It sounds like it could be this or it could be this. And that's going to be going on in their brain, whether or not they say anything about it, whether or not not even they're aware of it themselves, their brain already might be going through this diagnostic process. Exactly. That's, that's what it's, that's how you are. So you can't just leave, your therapistness, especially after going through 10 plus years of school, this is your full-time job, this is what you do, you can't just not be that sometimes. Well, especially because like with a mechanic, while there is that fair amount of muscle memory, internal knowledge they have, assessment skill, there's a whole bunch of tools which are physical 
that they have to kind of pull out the right tools. And for us, all of it is housed in our brain and in our body. And in fact, so many of the tools and interventions, they are how we behave, speak, like you're saying, even using silence, aligning our body with somebody versus, you know, not aligning how we hold our body, whether, and again, not that every moment, every second, we're just totally in tune with that, but our body is our tool for intervention. We can't just step into our therapist body and then leave that at work and then have our separate home body with these different skills and abilities. And so it, it is difficult sometimes I've found when, especially when it's negative feedback, when I think I'm just being me, but I'm me with all of these skills and abilities because my body is my tool, my language is my tool, uh, it's the vehicle for delivering therapy we're trying to provide. And I have to double check because I'm like, am I taking for granted that I'm too much in that? Although it just is all me. Mm -hmm. It's just how much of what parts of me do I expand out? How much of me do I abridge? The worst part of it for me is sitting back and questioning if I have moments where I haven't just somehow let myself be however I would have liked to be, especially in personal moments, sitting back and being like, why? was I almost kind of dissociated from myself mm -hmm. and in this space of being whatever I thought I had to be, like what was happening for me there? Because I'll find that where I can't just be in a moment. Something's holding me back. And again, whether it's this idea of I don't want to overstep. The idea of people knowing you're a therapist impacts how I'm able to be in a moment. Oh yeah, and you I know, remember just, getting that pressure even in graduate school and through supervisors of you need to show up to every space as a professional person. It really makes it hard to be a human as I'm the type yeah. of therapist that I'm not interested in giving anybody the illusion that therapy is going to create like transcendence where they're no longer going to experience any frustrations or do anything wrong, right? And yet there's this pressure for therapists to be that way. Like embody where, that. Yeah, exactly. Where I'm, I'm always in and it doesn't matter what. And we've talked about this before with income, right? Where therapists should somehow be super accessible to everyone all the time, despite we have the same level of education as a doctor, but get paid on average about 10 times less. And we might even have the same overlap of clients between the, the doctors. We might even be treating the same symptoms in those clients. And what we're doing might be even more effective than what the doctor's doing. So there's not a lot of discrepancies there as far as the difference in the job description, but there's a huge discrepancy in income and what therapists are expected or should expect from it. But this idea that that regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of if we're able to afford housing or taking care of ourselves, or if we have time for self-care or anything like that, we should always show up in every space as these totally transcended Zen individuals. Yes. These people who are above needing money, who mm -hmm. are above needing physical things. Who are above needing vacations or self-care time. Or we're or... above having life experiences. We oh, talked yeah. about that recently <laughs> and probably would be its own podcast topic of this weird idea that people can minimize the value of what a therapist is saying because like they don't have real life experience yeah, like around like that or anything <laughs> but that that we often can reinforce that mm. perception in this weird I feel like it's a kind of a posturing probably I think the term even though it's used in different settings virtue signaling mm -hmm. amongst therapists I have found is very prevalent it's part of why no offense to anybody if you somehow feel offended by this as a therapist, but 
that's why for me sometimes I almost I just can't get myself to feel comfortable in big forum settings where a bunch of therapists are gathering because there is so much I must use the jargon and I'm and but then again I say this after just saying that some people will say that to me on a one-to-one -one basis and I'm yeah. just doing it but there's something about some of that posturing of this oh to demonstrate what a great therapist I am I must even in every moment as I'm speaking I'm using this voice and I'm going to talk about this and when you say something I'm going to reframe it in a clinical term because and like kind of laugh about it because I'm so enlightened this is just who I am and there's a weird superficiality in that that really bothers me because first of all I don't care to do that with my clients I definitely don't care to posture around other professionals and for me it's kind of a vetting thing where if I recognize other people or professionals are caught up in that it kind of initially tells me hey they're just they might be great at what they do they're not somebody that I maybe would care to have any in-depth connection with mm -hmm. because I'm very I'm disinterested in playing that game but I think there's a lot of pressure to do that in the field yeah with each other with clients mm -hmm. just just in general just and it's so inauthentic it's so fake and it feels so cringy to yeah. me and yet I find myself noticing that I do feel this pressure to behave in a certain way and when I first started out after graduate school I was working locally in the same city that I live in and I felt this pressure even to even even though I've always been the type of person who just goes to the store in my sweats and my messy bun and, and all of that kind of stuff just wearing whatever braless you know whatever it didn't matter I felt this pressure to now suddenly dress as if I was going to work like all every time. single time I exited my front door. And it just became this burden where it was completely unnecessary. When I see that happening with other people or when I hear that kind of messaging, it feels so limiting. Yeah. It just makes me question, like, why am I even a therapist? Like, if I, like, it's great to have this great skill set, but if that means that I have to not be a person, then... Or pretend I'm above it or pretend I have all the answers. Exactly. That, and what does that mean? For me, it creates this, this sense. It seems like it's shaming towards our clients or demeaning towards them and increases stigma within okay. like, oh, well, I'm a therapist. I'm above it all. And you're a mere client. And you're not as, as zen and transcended and, and awakened as I am. And so, yeah. you know, that's why you're in that chair and I'm in yeah. this chair. It feels, very, it feels very selfish. This I need there to be this divide between us. Mm -hmm. And I need you to know I've got it more figured out than you. I'm more intelligent than you. I'm more enlightened than you. I'm more above you. And so to me, it reinforces this uneven power imbalance that already exists. Someone is coming to us for support. They're in a one down position. Just like when I take my car to a mechanic, I'm in a one down position from them. I don't know what's going on. I am trusting they're going to be honest with me and that they're going to do a good job and they're not going to create a problem and, you know, for me, that they're going to fix my problem and that I can go to them again. And to me that it begins to play into what feels really dirty or gross about how I've seen some people manage their professionalism or their professional identities in a way that feels abusive, that feels coercive that feels very much like, as much as they might act like they're there to help the client, they're there to really feel 
to aggrandize themselves, mm-hmm. to feel special, and yeah, and to feed their ego in some way. And yeah, if the client gets helped along the way, wonderful. But and I'll pretend that's what it's really about because I'm so wonderful. I am here to help people, but. At the end of the day, it's kind of about. I was able to reinforce today how smart I am, how incredible I am, how I've got it so together compared to these other people. And yeah, I think just some of these pressures that I'm sure maybe other professionals face them too in their own way, and we face them in our own unique way as therapists. It is a weird thing. Like for me, when I was in the, you were talking about walking like with a messy bum and just kind of dressed casually. I remember having one of those moments a couple of years back when we were working at the treatment facility together. And uh, one of the people that was in the recovery program was working at a particular, like a thrift shop that I frequented at that time. And I was, I was in like my workout shorts and a big hoodie and totally like messy bun. And then they, there they were checking me out and it, not checking me out. And then, <laughs> so they were literally scanning me out and it, they were, oh, hey. And I'm like, oh yeah. And I had one of those moments of how do I feel about this? Mm-hmm. It was a moment of decision of am I okay going out in my workout shorts and in a hoodie and going through a store and then being this way and them seeing me this way and then tomorrow I'm going to see them in group therapy that I'm going to be directing. And for me, it was a moment of going, oh, I have a little bit of an insecurity around that, but at the end of the day, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with them knowing I'm this human being. And yeah, I, I provide them with directing that group therapy class. And I'm a person who wears my sweatshirt and my shorts and totally in this sloppy mode, mm-hmm. and I'm at the thrift store. Yeah, you know? it can be kind of like seeing a teacher outside of school when you're a yeah. kid. I'm like, oh, you're a human? What? And it, it seems especially with therapists, and you know, we talk about our own pressure internally and then pressure from supervisors and graduate school and all of that, but also there's this pressure that comes from people. When you hear people talking about a therapist, it's like, oh, you know, their life is a total disaster. I mean, they must be a terrible therapist. And it's interesting because we're one of the only professions where that seems to be the case. You know, it can be acknowledged that, a, and there's even movies about doctors who are like a complete mess. I mean, look at, you know, even like TV shows like Grey's Anatomy. Or they BR always sensationalize right? the brilliant doctor, but their life is a mess. They're or total they're me- exactly. totally neurotic. But, but. They, but that is, they're applying tools. They're applying medicine. The doctor themselves is not the prescription. The therapist themselves is the prescription. So you can still, you know, provide a really good prescription with, you know, even though your life is a mess if you're a doctor. But as a therapist, there is a lot of judgment. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're a therapist. How, how could they have anything to offer? And it completely discounts the level of education that therapists do have and the ability to separate our own lives. You know, you hear a lot in the coaching field, well, I am able to tell you how to do this because I've, I've done it myself. And sometimes that gets projected onto the therapy field of, oh, well, um, you know, we've worked with a lot with addicts um, at that yeah. treatment center, and I've worked with quite a few addicts. I don't know how many addicts you see in your private practice. Yeah, I, I imagine with you see in recovery, yeah, outside of that. Yeah, um, and typically, right off the bat, one of the first questions is like, "Oh, well, are you an addict as a therapist? Um, are you know, are you in recovery?" And there's this discounting of like, "How could you even help me if you haven't firsthand experienced addiction?" and and it's interesting, it's like as a as a car mechanic, oh, well, do you have a Toyota? 
you know, 2001 this Toyota particular problem. with this specific problem or as a doctor have you experienced cancer and this specific kind of cancer how could you even help me if you haven't it seems ridiculous to ask these questions to these other mm -hmm. professions but with therapy it's really hard because our toolkit is within our body and within our brains mm -hmm. it is hard to separate you know the the human from the therapist but there is a separation there and that's something that we really are quite trained in as far as being able to take away our own projections take away our own humanness while leaving enough so that we can connect human to human and feel that empathy and be there in the room but immersing ourselves into the clinician reality and the client reality that's definitely perpetuated by clients as well and by uh, just you know everyday people and even by other therapists when they're talking about other therapists it's like oh well you know their life's a mess so how could they be a good therapist yeah. and it's so tough too because absolutely i there's so much credence in what you're talking about and then too i tend to err on the side as well of going it's our body it's it's our judgment it's how we speak it's how we behave when we talk about a physical fitness trainer if a physical fitness trainer doesn't have their body in order or doesn't their body is kind of a billboard for their knowledge and their skills and their effective application of it and while somebody could be coaching on the other side of it an actual like sports coach sports coaches weren't necessarily the star athlete and they also aren't necessarily always somebody who themselves has like this incredible physique but they know how to help their players to train and to apply strategy and to be successful but again like on a one-to-one -one, like physical coach perspective there is kind of this expectation of but if you're really an expert in this field it's going to be reflectant and maybe how you look or your own health as much as there might be some some variance there i do feel a pressure to need to be applying and living the things that I am recommending to people. If anything, from a place of, I have just this real struggle with not wanting to be a hypocrite. I actively try to engage in applying, not only personally, but relationally, the things I know to be the healthy way to do that particular thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like John Gottman's Sound Relationship House, the knowledge he has around having a relationship, being a relationship master versus a disaster, or whether it's even Satir's perspectives around the importance of having a full spectrum of emotional expressiveness so that you don't have certain parts of you blocked off because we can't just dissociate certain parts, we have to express all parts. I do feel that pressure to need to embody those things, but also I'm disgusted by overtly posturing mm -hmm. that. I want to do it, but have it just be apparent passively, quietly, and however I am in a space, not to like overtly have to posture because then for me it feels like, okay, what am I trying to prove? Is this really about me trying to be a good clinician or is it about me looking like I'm a good clinician? Am I really doing it if I'm so busy trying to prove to people that I'm doing it? You can effectively like help somebody through addiction without having been through addiction yourself. Right. A surgeon can help someone experience relief from a collapsing artery without having gone through that themselves so it's it's a weird catch-22 and it's not a zero-sum game mm -hmm. yeah but. there's so many there's so many layers of that and there's so many ways that we uh, so many th filters and layers to which we view each other and judge each other through yeah. too right um to some people it might be oh, they have such a, a trashy car, you know, how could they tell me how to live my life because I have such a nice car and they have such a trashy car. Oh, that's true. And it's, you know, we, we all just have these different filters that we 
put things through it, it seems like the stakes are just really quite high for therapists. And some of that comes from clients and society and some of that comes from internally through education Mm -hmm. and ethics and supervisors and the virtue signaling that happens and the shaming that happens from therapist to therapist that it is this constant feeling, especially if you allow it to be, to be on guard about all of oh, these yeah. things and to be shielding. And, and I, I 100% agree that, you know, as therapists, if we're not applying techniques in our lives, we're, we're missing out on benefit, it, first yeah. off, but also missing out on knowing what we're asking our clients to do. Oh, totally. And yeah, there's that side having of that. that perspective of like, oh, yeah, like I tried this and, and, you know, it was more difficult than I thought it would be, right? Or to stick to that routine or to to think in that certain way or to interact with people in that in that certain way. But there there's so many cultural things that go into it as well. And one of my first jobs out of graduate school was a private practice in a pretty conservative area. And I was a single mom at the time, so I was dating. And I remember a lot of pressure from my supervisors and my, my boss to date a certain way no way or to like not date publicly. i don't think i don't think you ever told me about this i don't <laughs> yeah. think or maybe we did we know each other back anyways we i never know never heard other, this. yeah i, I was this. still working there when i was also working at the facility we worked at together yeah. but i had been working there for about two years prior as well and it was really interesting and as a brand new therapist living in utah i'm not lds and so i there's a there's a lot of feeling of like just being in the wrong all the time. There's like all of the people who have the power are LDS, right? Whether they're the legislatures or authority figures, right? For the most part, people are. And so there's like this pressure of the right way to do things. The right way the to, do way to do things and the right way to be is the LDS way. Hmm. So it's very hard to navigate that. So then as a brand new therapist, these people in positions of authority who are also LDS and we're serving a, a majority of our client population was also LDS. So they're mm-hmm. telling me how I should and, and should not go about dating Dang. because of how it might reflect on me or them, their clinic. Right? Wow. Um, That's a it, lot of pressure. It was. It was a lot of pressure. <laughs> there was an issue where I did for about a month date a man who turned out to be one of my client's mom's girlfriends, ex-husbands, or something like that. Wow. Oh, yeah. And so the mom was polyamorous, so was dating quite a few people, right? And there's, you know, no judgment there. There's plenty of people who are are polyamorous, right? Sure. But that did, you know, widen the pool of people who I might accidentally date one of their exes. Just quite a broad pool there. Um, and I'm trying right now not to sound unprofessional, but like it really was a stupid situation. Well, and, and, from, and from a clinical place, there is nothing that kind of this person knows this person knows this person, and then you happen to date, like that's not an inappropriate thing. At a no. certain point, if if you were trying to date a client or trying to like date a client's yeah. child or a brother or a sister or somebody, that's where things can get muddy. Definitely, like not a client. That's right. But so, Absolutely. like in this case, client. though, in case anybody's wondering, that kind of lengthy thing is more right. of a, oh, that's challenging to navigate versus you were doing anything wrong. Exactly. And I had no, I had no idea. The only reason we even found out, I figured it out because my client was talking about this kid and it was the guy that I was dating's kid. And for some reason, this kid was spending time at my client's house. And I was like, oh, okay. So I, I asked about it and it, 
I, you know, I figured out that that was the situation that was happening. My client was 18. So I called Doppel just to be sure and you. said, hey, which Doppel is the licensing agency and they have people who are in charge of looking over ethics and making sure everything is above board. So I called them and said, look, this is the situation that I'm in. What should I do about it? And they said, just, you know, disclose to the client the relationship and see what they want to do. And this client was 18, but I had started seeing her when she was 17 or 16. So I disclosed this to the client and she said, I'm totally fine to keep seeing you. Like this person's not in my life. They don't affect me in any way. So I got a call later from my boss. She was very upset with me that this situation was happening and how I had handled it. So I, you know, I told her, you know, I talked to Doppel and this is what they said to do. And she was saying like, no, you should have talked to her mom, not to her. And I was like, well, there's not even a release of information on file. I can't talk to her mom. Right. She's an adult. But my boss was saying, no, she's a child. I'm like, well, you can think of 18-year-olds as children, but legally she is an adult. Mm -hmm. and the, Has rights to privacy. Exactly. So the, the mom ended up scheduling a meeting with my boss, and then they pulled me in, and they were both very upset. And then the mom made my client stop seeing me because of this dating situation and because of the way that the mom was viewing me because I was dating this person who she looked at as a bad person because she was dating his ex-wife, so through her own filters, right, of judgment, and then placing me in a category based on that, regardless of the fact that I had made really good progress with her daughter over the last two years. And then even later in, in the relationship, in the supervisor relationship with my boss, she brought it up again as, an, as a discrepancy, as a bad thing that I had done that she so graciously overlooked and, you know, continued allowing me to work for their clinic, even though I had messed up so egregiously. Those kinds of situations that happen as a therapist that are just yeah. so, they're overwhelming, they're, they really make you question yourself and they really start to limit your experience of who am I allowed to be as a person totally. if I accidentally date this totally random person. Yeah. Well, cause that was a, honestly a total overstep. I've had overstepping happen by bosses that I have worked for. It's part of why like, I just do private practice. I do see clients underneath the clinic of one of my ex-professors, uh, which I'm totally happy doing because he allows me to operate independently. But it is really difficult when you experience overstepping, especially in phases of your career or your education where you are so beholden to these people around you because for anyone who doesn't know to become a therapist generally it, it can vary with your educational program but there's several years of education through which part of that you are acting as an intern and you're starting to do therapy always under the supervision of professors and an external supervisor that you're paying you're often doing free work free labor as an intern in external clinics or sometimes even in your educational program and again, you're having to do hundreds of hours, sometimes just with individuals, with groups, with couples, depending on your licensure, and you're having to do hundreds of hours of supervision. So then even when you're out of school, you're, so you're kind of in this sense of, I need to get all these hours to be able to get through this next class, to be able to graduate, to be able to then have everything I need to be an associate. Because then when you're out of school, you're an associate for several years while you're getting more hours, paying for more supervision. Usually, hopefully, as, a, as an associate, you should definitely pay, be paid. I think as an intern you should too. But 
you are kind of at the mercy of all of these people and you're having to just jump through the hoops and you don't feel the ability to challenge these, these authorities. The supervisors have to sign off on your hours. So you, you can get all of the hours. You can get your 4,000 hours that you need or however many hours it is that you need to making the clinical experience. Mm -hmm. But if your supervisor or one of your supervisors doesn't sign off on that at the end of the day, then that means not moving forward in class, not graduating from the program, mm -hmm. not becoming licensed. So these people have a lot of authority. Oh, yeah. And so even if you're experiencing them overstepping, them not compensating you appropriately, them mistreating you, um, not having your back, if maybe a client, you know, says or does something that's out of line, but then, and you've acted appropriately, but this client has made a big stink, and so the, the clinic chooses or the whoever the boss chooses their side over yours or doesn't want to face liability or who knows, doesn't want the reputation, as you're even saying, their reputation or the clinic's reputation to be impacted. You can be in this very disempowered position, but it can set us up when we already, like you said, whether, whether as a therapist it really makes all, all the difference to be living all of the principles and try to live this immaculate life or not, whether that makes a big difference in really the quality of therapy we can provide, it's a lot of pressure to decide how much of that we, we engage in for ourselves and then to have situations where people overstep, like in your case, where it was a personal choice, there was nothing ethically wrong with it, you handled it the right way, and yet they're still trying to use it as though it's some mark against you. Right, because it doesn't, at the end of the day, it was about their as far as my boss goes, her specific moral standard based on the church that she's in and, and her fears about her clinic and how people will perceive her clinic within the community and perceive her within the community. And then also matched with the client's mom's fears of, you know, her dating relationships and everything that she was going through and maybe some stuff that she was hearing from, um, from this ex-wife and, and who knows, right? So all of you know my ability to be a competent professional being filtered through whatever was going on for them at the moment and then at the end of the day as people in positions of authority over both me and my client their perspective wins out whether or not it was the right perspective and and it really the experience after experience after experience like those that you know we've both had and i've talked to so many other therapists who have had similar experiences with with people in positions in power and and with um, the community and society and the pressure that therapists are under, it, it really does start to wear on you as a person and, and put a lot of pressure onto who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to put out there and what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And it, it does, it just takes a lot of brain power, a lot of effort yeah. to be a human who's a therapist. Yeah. And it's, I was actually, because we've obviously talked a lot about either sometimes our shared experiences or our separate experiences with even not just experiencing those pressures, but even feeling exploited by um, past uh, employers or managers and thinking back on that. Um, we were kind of as we were talking about like this weird pressure to need to present as though like we're above needing money or that we're so enlightened and then in certain like clinical settings that is totally exploited by clinical directors or owners of companies where I mean I have specifically had experiences where I went to 
uh, and the, it was actually the owner of the company, but they were also at least behaviorally trained. So they were engaged in sometimes some of the, the program stuff beyond just oversight of employees. And they weren't compensating us, which it's legally they're supposed to for our time and the wear and tear in our vehicles and the gas for traveling to clients' homes, because they as a clinic were claiming we provide in-home treatment, but they didn't provide in-home treatment. They expected us as their clinicians to provide and pretty much pay for the in-home treatment from a perspective of it was our vehicles, we were paying for the gas, they weren't paying us for our time. And there are certain legal standards around that that they're supposed to recompensate you a certain amount per mile for the gas, for the wear and tear, for your time. But I remember talking to her about that and saying, you know, gosh, at the end of the day, and then I was, I was an associate at that time. So I'm very much at the mercy of needing to get my hours and needing the clinic to sign off on the work I did. And then I, luckily I always had great supervisors outside of those clinics. I remember talking to her and basically saying, hey, you know, I needed more appropriate compensation because you're not compensating us for these things that you should be. And it's making it untenable for, you know, at that time, again, often too, you sometimes you're working to get your hours and you might even be working another job to try to make ends meet. And I remember her looking at me and saying, we want people here who are interested in helping people <laughs> and who have a passion for doing the work and who aren't fixated on money. And so, you know, you just might not be the kind of person we're looking for here. And here I was, I think I was even at that point about to, I might have been in my doctoral program, so in the beginning stage of that, another four years of education after my master's program. Here I was, had finished a master's program, was an associate working towards full licensure. They had received so much cheap labor from me, and then all of this in-home care that I had facilitated you know, funding that being able to happen for their business. And there were other clinicians working for them, not just me. And then here I am just asking for appropriate compensation where they were not following the law. Not just my sense of what I deserve, but law. And that was that level of like exploitation from somebody that you, it's even more disappointing when it comes from somebody who works in our mm -hmm. profession. And in her case, she wasn't just a business person who'd started this business. She had some behavioral training. Now she wasn't a therapist. She didn't have a master's or a doctoral degree, but at least uh, not one that I was aware of and not one as a clinician, but it's things like that that then you have to just tolerate. Like at that point, I just took that as I need to find a different place to, mm. to transition to. Right. But there's so much taking advantage of clinicians and sometimes playing off of those expectations and stereotypes you must as a clinician be above all of these things and it's like the only reason I can do this work and I love being able to do pro bono work I love being able to offer discounted rates so long as it's my choice mm -hmm. and it feels right and I feel like it's truly helping the person but to be exploited that way and that's not the first time and it wasn't oh, yeah. the last time I had been exploited but it happens and these really toxic expectations for therapists are used right for really them to do that. manipulative tactics to use mm -hmm. to make you feel like you're not a good person you're not you know you hear it a lot in it for the right reasons if you're not somehow either able to transcend capitalism and, and the need for money that everybody has or you know I guess you could be a therapist and be a trust fund kid and I mean that would be fine you might be a little bit out of touch with 
your average client, okay. if that were the case. But people think but you're already out of touch anyway. It's true, it's true, but you might actually be <laughs> out of touch <laughs> if, if you don't, if you really don't need any kind of income from the work that you're doing. And, and we've talked about, you know, these, these similar experiences just happening over and over and over again. And again, they come from other therapists. You know, when, when you go to those conferences or those trainings where there's a large gathering of therapists, of course, the the ultimate therapist is that, you know, the super, like, amazing therapist, but they only do nonprofit work and all that stuff, and that's great. Um, if like, that's they what have you're the privilege, for whatever reason, to be purely altruistic, even though then you're, like, you're... You're doing it for your ego, though. Oh, anyways. exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, we, we can see it, right? But then also from the general populace, who I think part of it is just a lack of understanding, where a lot of, most people don't understand how poorly insurance reimburses therapists. So they, you know, I'll, I'll see ads on social media, on Facebook, TikTok, uh, Instagram, wherever, uh, about helping therapists grow a cash pay business. And... Every single time, if there's comments underneath it, um, and I go into the comments and I'll, I'll just kind of look and see out of curiosity what the different perspectives are in there. But the majority of comments tend to be from people who aren't therapists, who are saying things about you know how selfish that is because therapy is so inaccessible, how people you know need therapy and how you know it's so that the therapists aren't in it for the right reasons and and sometimes there is just a lack of understanding that insurance companies there's we could do a whole podcast on insurance companies but and just even educating three, right just right, educating, just educating what that looks like what's going on and why some therapists or why a lot of therapists will not work with insurance companies but one of the major issues is that insurance companies reimburse very little and they make you work really hard for that reimbursement mm. not just the excessive paperwork but the amount of time they make mm. you wait for either them to just reject the work and the then you have to go back in and you know have a conversation with them but a lot of times they don't want to talk to the therapist they want to talk to a doctor so then you have to get a hold of a doctor who you have to fill in the details of the case because they don't really know the client and then the doctor has to talk to the insurance and it's just this huge thing you end up being on hold a lot with with so it's hours and hours and hours and insurance only reimburses you for when you're face to face with a client and only if that client has a diagnosis of a particular um, degree of severity. Uh, yes, and a diagnosis that that insurance covers um, and covers for a certain amount of sessions. So you and, and insurance can require that you pay them back at any moment for no reason. They, even for the last 30 years, they can say like, look, we've been paying you for 30 years for these clients and we've now decided that we'd like you to pay us back and there's nothing you can do to stop that situation. You just have to pay them back. And they don't have to really have any, any kind of great reasons to do so either. But beyond all of that, and there's so many other reasons to not take to not work with insurance, oftentimes they reimburse as little as like $17 procession and when you look at all of the time put into getting that $17 above and beyond that hour that you spend with the client and then a lot of times the overhead of having an office having a receptionist using a third-party billing company or just a, a biller that you a biller exactly. hire or contract with because if you're working with insurance and like you said all the battling and all of the legwork you have to do just to try to chase the money that you've already done everything they've asked you to do and then had to 
tolerate audits where they're always going to come in and find something. Something right? wrong. Exactly. And then the, the HIPAA compliant software to write the notes in to be able to send to the insurance company and, you know, all of that. Um, at that point, the therapist is paying for the session. They're not getting anything. So it's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, you're, at least you're getting $17 an hour, which is, I guess, not. like $2 an hour. You're getting than. like negative $105. Exactly. Whatever it ends up translating to, because again, the paperwork and the chasing the money and submitting mm -hmm. the documentation, because for each session, there's a, there's a note you should be writing and there's certain things that should be included in that note at least on a base level and that can vary depending on what you're doing and, and the process but then like you said there's there's all your billing software there's the treatment uh, there's the treatment plan you, that needs to be updated a certain amount of times but even then it's not like you're sending those notes directly to the insurance company you're probably sending a certain type of summary or different codes and different justifications so there's so many steps to be able to claim that $17 and already probably just with the amount of time you're taking to have to do the paperwork mm -hmm. outside of that session time, you're already you're the money already you the think you've just earned. So that's where clinics often, from my perspective, right, this is my perspective of it, to be able to even like pay that full-time biller or that full-time receptionist, you're having to then get as many therapists doing as many sessions, seeing as many clients every day you know, back to back to be able to afford that and paying those therapists as little as you possibly can so that you're, you're at least trying to, you're making something from, if you end up being either a therapist to apply, apply employees, other therapists, I'm talking kind of in a clinic setting, but then the goal is how many, how many butts we can get in chairs right. each it's day. It's supply and demand and the, the therapist becomes that supply and you squeeze the supply, right? So therapist seeing as many clients as possible. I've, you know, working at a clinic, I've seen 12, 13 clients in a day, five days a week. Which means um, your caseload is even wider than that for oh, times yeah. that by how many days. Um, and then some clients are coming in every other week, every three weeks or so. So you have this caseload of, you know, 70 clients are typically, you know, they typically cast a very wide net to be able to, to catch whoever whoever is looking for therapy in the general area. So you have clients who are three years old and struggling with potty training and clients who are 70 years old and struggling with um, life stuff that they're, that they're going through. And from hour to hour and hour, there's, there's all of these hugely differing, varying people. You try to do your best for them, but when your quality of life is suffering because the amount of hours that you're working and the amount of effort that you're putting in to working with these clients at the best of your ability, while also, I've, I've never worked at a clinic where I had a lunch break. Yeah. Um, and most of the time when I got home, I was running to a the bathroom. A consistent working I was space not. <laughs> or, you know, a, an office that was yours. Yeah. You don't have a designated space because they want to, if you don't have a session you want another therapist in there which kind of makes sense if then you had another designated space but you don't so you're this nomad mm -hmm. jumping from office space to office space having to carry your equipment on your back you know like a turtle yeah and because we all do that now with our technology and then like you said your your schedule is booked out at least this was my experience working at clinics you're thrown whoever fits in your schedule or whose schedule fits yours um you, so it's really hard to work with somebody who's really specialized in what you need, like if you're a client, because you're kind of getting whoever mm -hmm. if you're going to these clinics. And then it's whoever can... And this can, is even clinics that, that say, like, this is what we specialize in. They're still taking 
anyone. And yeah. I've, I've experienced that over and over again with my own career as well as talking to other therapists and, and at, on the client end looking for therapists. My spouse is currently doing some co-parenting therapy with their ex and we finally found a clinic that said that they were very specialized in a specific modality that is for this specific kind of situation. And I was talking to the therapist and just asked a bit about, you know, what she does. And it sounds like even at that clinic, she's maybe three or four of the people on her caseload are within their niche. And then other than that, it's really anyone. And that was my experience as well, working at a clinic who said that they specialized in children with, you know, autism, essentially, or severe ADHD. My client load maybe had four or five of those types of clients at a time, and the rest was just really anything that anybody who called in was put with any therapist and they consistently were just hiring new therapists to just like you said to be able to have as many therapists as possible to be able to catch as many clients in the wide net as possible and then paying their therapists and treating them so poorly that it was a revolving door therapist leaving on average every three months well and then filling your schedule up from 8 a.m to 6 p.m and then expecting you like you said often like to not take a lunch break or because of sometimes such poor working uh, environment you have really high turnover of therapists so there's always people needing to be transferred off of the therapist who's no longer with the clinic onto your caseload mm -hmm. people who still need support who are being seen by the clinic and that's the tough thing working for a clinic too is the clients are really your clients right. they're like the clinic's clients so there's can be this weird competitiveness or uh, territorialness with clinics, some clinics, oh, with yeah. their therapists over like, they are your client, but they're the, the place's client, uh, the uh, clinic's client. So as much as they want you to have this great relationship with your clients, they, they don't want you to have any illusions that they're right. your client. It's this weird thing, but they want to pack your, your day full because that's how they take full advantage of making as much as they can off of you because whatever they're paying you they're taking you know on top of that whatever else has been compensated for which like you said especially if they're working for insurance isn't much mm -hmm. and so they're still making sure they're getting x amount of cut above that you're getting x amount you know below that and then they want you to get your paperwork done in the day so then you end up in the cycle of you're either sitting and just once a week or however often just paperwork for hours that you're not getting paid for, or you're taking it home or staying at the clinic late, never actually really going home. And like you said, that's where the burnout, quality yeah. of life, quality of care totally takes oh, a huge yeah. nosedive. Absolutely. And then add in the manipulation that you experience when you try to bring up any of these concerns or... And, and that uh, the relationship that it breeds between you and your clients when they've been transferred. I worked at um, three off the top of my head, no, four off the top of my head clinics where that same issue was really prevalent, where clients were just getting transferred from therapist to therapist because therapists just kept leaving and, and no one's being honest with the clients as to why, because you have to protect the clinic. Because it's the clinic, so even though the clinic is horrifically mistreating you and you know that it's bad for the clients to be therapist hopping. Um, no, another one just popped into my head, another clinic. <laughs> this was a prevalent issue. You just, you have to pretend like, oh yeah, everything's fine. They're like, oh well, yeah, my, my therapist, I've been through two therapists in the last six months. What's what's going on? You know, are you going to be here long term? Like, yeah, I mean, that's the plan. I mean, you can't really say like, oh no, this place is absolutely terrible. You know, I'm being treated terribly and I'm working 13 hour days or 12 hour days and I 
you know, my water's been shut off for a week because I just can't afford to pay it. Um, yeah. So I'm probably going to be gone soon too. And it worries. Yeah, you're not <laughs> saying it, not just to protect the clinic or even as your primary thing, but because you're not wanting to hurt your the the client from getting the best care possible right. or you don't want their to perspective. Feel like a burden. But at the same time, like sometimes in those situations, you want to just be able to, to say like, you should go to a different clinic. Like this is, this clinic doesn't have what you need based on what I'm hearing from you. And you represent a certain amount of money to them, right. but do they really have the ability to meet your treatment needs now? No. Yeah, and that, that has been a repeat thing that's happened within clinics as well, where it becomes this, you become torn as a clinician of, do I really say to my client what, it, what would be the best thing for them, or do I keep my job, essentially, because I, you know, I, can't, I can't afford to be fired from this, this yeah. job. And I think just like with any abusive relationship in clinics that are less healthy and are more abusive, there is more of that pressure to have to secret keep mm-hmm. for the clinic as you would for an abusive partner. And really, if we're looking at it, we're in a partnership with this clinic and we're, we're looking to provide something, we're looking to get something, and we're hoping it's going to be a fair and equitable exchange. But, uh, you know, as you, you'd even brought up with your experience of them overstepping into your personal life and who you're dating when there's no ethical reason why they have any right to that or to frame it negatively or these other scenarios we're talking about. Part of the reason I think like with you and I, it's like once you get past being an associate and being at the mercy of, I need these hours to be able to come fully licensed and then I'll have a bit more autonomy. Once you do have that autonomy, even then you can still kind of be stuck in this thing of, well, is, is this as good as it gets? Are the benefits, do they outweigh the negatives? And you are almost kind of forced into, in some cases, in some clinics, in some professional relationships, forced into this place of doing what we look at from like a relationship dynamic of like the one of the partners going, well, they beat me and they financially withhold. And, you know, I, I definitely don't have, a, I have a really shitty sense of self now because of, how horrible they've convinced me that I am. But, I mean, they're a good parent and like we live in a nice house and you find yourself doing that. And I, regrettably, I don't feel like that's a, I'm being hyperbolic and making that comparison because I have regrettably worked for several clinics where, especially looking back when you're out of the abusive, manipulative relationship, even the other day, in talking about this, it's a small thing, but for some reason it keeps popping up into my mind and I want to say it. I was just thinking the other day about, there was a time when one of my supervisors, and they happened to be an in-clinic supervisor, but they were great. They, during the supervision session, we were talking about how I was doing and they were like, well, you know, the boss was kind of making comments about not always liking the clothing you're wearing, not always feeling it's like nice enough or professional enough. And I remember at that time I was a little more like sensitive to judgment, but at least luckily in this case, my supervisor was a bit of a buffer. Although on a side note, she ended up leaving later and we both connected over how we had to detoxify once leaving this place. But I just loved about her and it was powerful enough. I remember even though it was small, her going, I, I looked the owner in the eye. I'm like, you're not paying her. She's doing free work for you. If you want her to buy nicer clothes, maybe pay her. Otherwise, like she's a student, she's doing free work for you. Yeah, you're. she's not gonna be wearing the nicest clothing. And not that I was like showing up shabby, mm-hmm. 
but probably shabbier than what they would have liked or just not as professional or something. But it was this moment of it, it, it was so refreshing to have someone who at least was kind of a buffer because that I would have been effectively shamed or manipulated had they not even themselves said, but here's the reality, like you're a student and they're not paying you. So of course you're not wearing the nicest clothes. So awesome that she stepped in and said that and she have that example. Shelly Sachs, wherever you are, <laughs> I've thought about you lately and you were an incredible therapist and an incredible mentor and yeah, I've thought about you lately. But that came to mind and that was a moment that I and in my program, I loved my program, but also there were things about it I could critique, as I'm sure anybody could, but I felt pretty torn down at that time in my life. And to have, and then I was in this exploitative, abusive clinic environment, which I think a lot of people experience regrettably, but to have that person kind of step in. And that was a really meaningful example to me of the type of mentor I would want to be or the type of supervisor I would want to be to someone. It's sad that it's so common. I'm sure there are clinics that aren't toxic for the therapists. I haven't had the luxury of working in any of them. I have not. Sadly. I, my, the best, I have worked at one place that was really quite healthy. Um, right. And it was awesome. a, it was a treatment center, it was an inpatient treatment center. And the one thing that I ended up really struggling with was the, that it was, you know, a teen treatment center in Utah, and I know that that's been getting a lot of media over the last couple of years, um, especially yeah. with the help of Paris Hilton. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah. I went to a treatment center as a teen myself. It was a very traumatizing experience. Mm. Part of why I worked there was I had been fired from the treatment center that Elizabeth and I both worked at, and that was a... We will have to share about it because yeah, it was... It was a. It was, was a, not an okay reason to no, be fired. No, um, it was not handled well. It was there was a lot of things completely inappropriate. Yeah. Um, but I. I was also. I was a single parent. I needed a job right then to to continue, and this was the first place that had an availability, and they were flexible enough with the schedule that I needed with my kids, and I hoped that I could make some positive change from the inside and I hoped that I could be a positive therapist for these kids who, if you're unfamiliar with the teen treatment industry, the treatment centers that are legal in Utah are illegal in all other states except for I believe mm -hmm. Kansas um, because kids have more rights in the other states and essentially these kids are transported and what that looks like is often big guys, total strangers, busting into their room in the middle of the night or... With their parents' permission, their parents permission are, are basically abducting. Ab yes, abducted. So these kids are, you know, they're, they're struggling. They're really struggling and they really need some help. But the way that it's gone about is destructive and, and traumatizing. And I do think that there is a better way to do it. We can talk about that another time. But so they're, they're traumatized. A lot of times they go to a wilderness therapy first for a couple of months where you know, they don't have access to really anything and they're really kind of stripped down of their, their identity, their, you know, their willpower, all of that. And then they go into one of these long-term facilities and can be there for 18 months, two years away from their family, their friends. They are constantly watched. They're on these behavior training things where they have to act a very specific way um, 
they it, it's it's really rigid and so as a trauma therapist you know trying to do work with trauma it's very hard to start trauma work by traumatizing someone right <laughs> it's very hard to start work um, if they're the person didn't really truly consent to the trauma therapy then that's the case in these situations so I loved the clients I loved the progress that I saw and some of the clients still are my my clients in private practice and I loved the work environment the people that I worked for were just it was a great it was a really healthy environment a really good place to be and I ended up being there for about three years I think um, but unfortunately I didn't ethically and morally agree with the broader concept of the treatment center which is a big reason that I left I think they did their best within the confines of being the type of treatment center that they are no I remember that seemed like a, a healthy place where you had landed healthy yeah. healthy enough functional enough mm-hmm. where it, as a friend watching you go through and we were going through similar things in the treatment facility we were working at we were in kind of the different settings I was in the outpatient setting more you were in the inpatient setting because they had both sides of that but it is it's hard to see friends being mistreated and treated unjustly and so it was it was wonderful to see you go somewhere that seemed like they appreciated you more and they I think from what I at least understood were compensating you better and providing you with more flexibility to work for your life better quality of life and I remember even you just talking about the clinical meetings and the difference the difference in those actually being these safe settings where the professionals allowed each other to be human but also trusted each other didn't feel this need to kind of analyze each other analyze each other as a means of like trying to wield power and control or put each other in their place or different things that can happen in clinical meetings aside from their purpose which should be I think to help clients and help clinicians have support but be better clinicians but yeah um, but it is it's it's hard and for me I used to think I wanted to start a clinic I used to think it'd be really cool for a particular purpose but I'll be honest that I've I definitely am a bit more skeptical that being able to carry out a healthy and effective clinical environment is possible. I'm sure that it is. And perhaps I just haven't been places where people were talented enough or capable enough or or ethical enough just all around to make it work. But for me also, I have a healthy respect for how challenging that must be to try and create a clinic or a treatment environment that functions for everybody and is healthy and where everyone's being compensated appropriately and so there's a part of me that understands too I doubt it's some small feat there's a reason why I think so many of these clinics are dysfunctional because it's not easy yeah the default isn't for it to just function well and so there's a, a skepticism that's possible but also like a healthy respect for how difficult it must be to accomplish that um, but uh, it doesn't minimize how, I think, rightfully critical I feel of a lot of those settings. And not just the compromised care and treatment of clients, but particularly the compromised treatment of the treatment providers, which I think there's no way that doesn't impact the quality of care. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, definitely I think something that we've even talked about writing our 
toxic workplace culture book. Yeah, just to help, uh, you know, new therapists entering into the field, you know, what, what to look for and that it's not you. And, and I'm so glad that I had the, the experience that I did with the, the healthier treatment center, like that su- supervisor that you had. It's so important to have those experiences because otherwise I might have just completely left the field and I might have felt that it was me, that I was the problem because I had been in four clinics by that point that it was, you know, it was consistently brushing up against these same issues where I'm wanting to provide this ethical quality care to my clients and also be able to support my family and support myself and have work-life balance. And I was consistently being met with a lot of pushback in all of those areas. Um, And it it really felt like, okay, well, maybe maybe I just don't have the type of personality. Maybe I'm not the right kind of person to be a therapist. Maybe this field is just toxic. Right. And it's all a big farce. And why do I want to be involved in something that does? Yeah. as much harm or just uses its skills to further manipulate whether yeah. it's clients or or each other or professionals <laughs> but like you said I I think having those experiences those glimmers of hope whether it's through a supervisor someone that you meet that you go wow they really represent to me what I think is really what's wonderful about the field of therapy and being a therapist or clinics that seem at least for the most part to function or to be striving to do what's right by their clients and their clinicians. I know for me in wanting to record, wanting to have these conversations with you, that's part of what I hope we accomplish is this being somewhat of a bit of a glimmer of hope to people, whether, like you said, it kind of normalizes it. It's like you're not alone if you've experienced these things or these struggles, whether it's about how certain clinics can function or how challenging it can be to try to be a good clinician or to feel the pressures of trying to just be a human being and not knowing how much we can let ourselves do that, or just humanizing therapists like we've talked about, um, destigmatizing therapy. I hope that we can keep it going, we can continue to have conversations that might have some type of educational value, but if anything, a value to us because we get to share and we get to connect, but maybe has a value to someone else. My hope is maybe this will be that for someone other than us, but even if it's just us, that's enough too. Yeah, and I know there's a there's a a podcast that I listen to on occasion that is um, two therapists who talk, and then they they bring on guests as well. And it is nice. Is a what I find I get lost in often, and and my clients get lost, and I think everybody gets lost in social media a lot of times. Um, And unless you're you know a really special person and totally not on that, in which case, like, good for you. No, no judgment. If you can't tell by the tone of her voice, she's skeptical that you exist. It's self-judgment. But and I, you know, I've considered being off social media, but it is very hard to run a business without being on, especially the type of business that I run, where I don't provide kind of the average therapy. Um, it's hard to to run that kind of business without having a social media presence. And I do like to, you know, I'm old school. I like to see what my friends who live out of state, who I don't have a ton of time to catch up with, I like to see what they're up to. So most of my my friends on social media are my real friends. 
Um, Thanks. Not just That's a bunch not of people. Me. I'm not one of those across state <laughs> social media friends. Therefore, not a real friend. No, you are. You're a real friend. I'm, I just don't add thousands of people that I just don't know, right? So I think I'm justifying my social media usage right now. Don't judge me. <laughs> um, but what I find is that there are so many very loud voices on social media. Yeah. And those voices are coaches, not therapists. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is a good breaking point. And, and so next time we're going to talk about coaches and what that's like for therapists and what we see within our clients and just kind of broadly having a, a conversation just like this about the influence of coaches yeah. on society on social media we're probably going to be pretty open forum with a lot of our discussions just so like therapist rambling yes therapist rambling about titles <laughs> But, um, and it's kind of us finding our footing. And so if anybody does end up listening to this, it resonates, it doesn't. We're intentionally not being very pointed about what we're talking about. We're letting it flow. If you have found us, if you have listened, thank you. Depending on the platform you might be listening through, we'd love feedback or and perspectives. we'd love to interview you as well. If you are a therapist and you're having similar experiences or you've had similar experiences or experiences of moral injury within the field where you felt like you had to do something that that did not feel right for you but you had to do it for whatever reason or if you're you know if you've gone through these experiences and now you're working on something that's corrective or even leaving the field there's been a, a big exodus of therapists becoming coaches recently too and that's interesting as well we'd love to talk to you about interviewing you on the podcast oh, yeah. we'd love to hear thoughts or if you're somebody who's a client not a therapist or a professional in the field and you have thoughts or questions we're open to that and talking about that anything that triggers a conversation but we're not interested <laughs> in interviewing <laughs> <laughs> unqualified <laughs> coaches or spiritual gurus I don't know or unless, people who want to come on here and try to sell their product <laughs> yeah who knows who knows we'll, we'll kind of see we'll kind of see but I think maybe next time especially as we get into conversation around some different things that have come up for us lately that we've been noticing in the general field of certain people putting themselves up as experts mm -hmm. in helping others there's certain things we've noticed that concern us or that we find a little bit disconcerting and that probably could be an issue. Well, we know. So if you, if you are a coach or a spiritual guru who feels like you have a special expertise in being able to help people, we'd love to interview you and really just grill you. You don't <laughs> want you to that. You get a total around there. You're like, we're not interested. Leave us alone. Just talk to us. Actually, reach out to us. We will interview you. And we will berate you. <laughs> and we will, but no, not berate, but like, but like, really question like i'd be really curious why on earth you think that you're qualified well, to do what you do and here's and we'll definitely i think if we, as we delve into this more specifically in another conversation talking about why if you're picking up on it the subtle skepticism <laughs> <laughs> that's here um talking about that because i do think the world is broad enough for all flavors of possibility but then there are certain things that 
that can be a bit concerning. There's a lot of misperceptions, but thank you for listening, whoever you are, even if it's just us. And I don't even know how long we've been talking. This is us saying thanks and signing off and hopefully we'll record something new and release it in the near future. Goodbye. <laughs> I wish, I wish everyone could have just seen your face right then. <laughs> See you later.